John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly, and my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 90. Of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. We are distributed by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed podcast, which takes a very hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it on social media. And follow us on Twitter at individual number one pod that's at individual the number one pod in just a few moments we'll be playing for you a uh, really tremendous although unfortunately somewhat truncated interview that we did moments ago with one of my favorite media personalities david schuster who has been a reporter and anchor at uh, nearly all of the uh, cable news uh, networks including msnbc and fox news channel which is a very rare combination and david and i go way way back uh, when we were combatants, back when I was defending uh, vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin after the 2008 election and did a documentary about the election of Barack Obama called Media Malpractice. And somehow, many, many years later, we have become friends. One of the few benefits of the very strange elements of the Trump era. But we'll talk to David about the fact that he and we'll kind of have a debate. It's a very, very interesting debate over the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, because he has been someone who has been been saying very much uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders is being underrated, that he can actually not only win the Democratic nomination, but also defeat Donald Trump. And he and I have a very, very interesting discussion slash debate on that. But first, a few thoughts about the debate last night. The Democratic candidates heading into South Carolina uh, held a uh, uh, what I thought was a horrendous debate. I mean, the, the person who really won last night, as is increasingly the case every time Democrats get together to debate, was Donald Trump. Correct. Uh, the, the, the lunacy that was up there was extreme. 
everyone, of course, now belatedly is going after Bernie Sanders, although Elizabeth Warren is still uh, fixated with going after Mike Bloomberg. Uh, but as Amy Klobuchar correctly pointed out, uh, if uh, Democrats are going to be fighting uh, like this with each other for the next four months, uh, they're all going to be and we are all going to be uh, watching Donald Trump in the White House for the next four years. Correct. Uh, and uh, and so things are getting uh, very depressing if you're someone who does not want to see Donald Trump get a second term without any accountability whatsoever. Uh, especially if you don't want somebody to replace him who is a, a self-described socialist and I believe also a pacifist in uh, in the form of Bernie Sanders. Now, um, it is my view that they're going after Bernie Sanders way too late. Now that he is the front runner, it's almost like, uh, you know, the, the teenage girl who has the the parents who don't like her boyfriend. The more you say you don't like the boyfriend, the more she likes the boyfriend and he becomes the forbidden fruit. Uh, we're living in an era where the establishment has very little credibility with most people. And so, therefore, when everyone is attacking one person, once they've become the leader and the alpha male, if you will, and that's clearly what Bernie is, much like Trump was in 2016, uh, I, I think it's very, very difficult to take them down, especially when Sanders has a huge advantage that not enough people are giving uh, him credit for. Uh, and this is where uh, Democrats get hoisted on their own petard. The reality is that for the last generation, Democrats have viewed politics and government as what stuff can they give to their prime constituencies? What free stuff can they give away? And when that becomes the prism through which you see politics and government, guess who's going to win that argument? The person who gives the most free stuff away. Correct. And no one gives more free stuff away than Bernie because he has absolutely no guardrails. He has no concerns about the costs. He doesn't care. And then the great irony of all this is what makes it even more difficult to combat Santa Claus, Bernie Sanders in the let's give everything away. Everything's free. We're going to you know, eliminate college debt and make uh, public college free and free medical for everybody. Uh, you know, because, hell, I live 50 miles away from Canada and they do it in Canada. So why can't we do it here? Let me tell you why they do it in Canada and, and we can't do it here in the United States. Uh, Canada doesn't have to uh, spend uh, as much, nearly as much money on a military as we do. And the other thing Canada doesn't have is doesn't have an invasion from a third world country on its southern border with uh, the poorest of that country coming across and now us having to take care of them uh, from a medical standpoint, especially if you go for free health care for everybody. Canada doesn't have to worry about those things. So it is a fundamental misconception uh, that somehow, uh, well, because Canada can do it, uh, we should do it as well. Uh, if we had those same circumstances, maybe we could get away with doing that. But we aren't in that situation. And the idea that Bernie thinks that we are, I think, uh, is one of the many problems with his candidacy. But the reality here is Democrats are in a very, very difficult spot in trying to take him down because especially among those who vote in Democratic primaries on the issues, most of those people actually agree with Bernie. They, they are ideologically much more in tune with Bernie. Plus, he's telling them what they want to hear. And thanks to Trump, no one can make the fiscal accountability argument. The fiscal accountability argument 
has no weight anymore because even a Republican president is spending like a drunken sailor and giving away free money to those who have been hurt by his own tariffs. Correct. Uh, so, so if you're a Democrat, how can the, well, how's Bernie going to pay for it argument work when Trump doesn't worry about how he pays for it? And now if Bernie's president, in theory, in their minds, he gets to give away everything with no accountability because we don't care about that anymore. It's all free money. It's all from a tree, this money tree, this magic money tree. So I don't know how you bring him down. Yeah, I mean, on the edges, the Castro thing, and I think they ought to be more concerned about the fact that he's a pacifist. I, I, I mean, to me, I, I believe Bernie Sanders is a pacifist. He, there is not one military conflict in his lifetime that he, he is currently in favor of. He voted for the war after 9-11 in Afghanistan, but he later said that was a mistake. Okay, it's nice and easy to be able to say in retrospect, I wouldn't have done that or that war was wrong, this war was wrong. Okay, tell me what war would be right. Under what circumstances would you use the U.S. military? And I don't trust him on that at all because he's a 60s radical pacifist which doesn't get nearly enough attention. But, so it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to, to uh, bring down Sanders now that he is the clear frontrunner. And one of the stranger strategic maneuvers by Elizabeth Warren, who appears very much to be running for Bernie Sanders' vice presidential nominee, is that Warren is now obsessed with going after Michael Bloomberg. Correct. I mean, it is crazy. I mean, it, it, you know, I get the first debate somewhat... Uh, because he was new to the to the field, and this was the first chance they had to get their claws into him. But she really went after him, and she got applauded for that. She didn't get rewarded in votes. She didn't do that well in Nevada. People didn't vote for her because of it. But you know, the media is basically Elizabeth Warren's base of support as it is. The media loved it, uh, and I'm sure she got a lot of applause. And and it's very obvious to me that Elizabeth Warren is an insecure person. She is a inauthentic and insecure person who loves the applause. It doesn't matter what she has to do to get it, uh, uh, but she'll keep doing the same trick over and over and over again uh, because she got applauded once for it. And she did it again last night. I thought she went way overboard in going after Michael Bloomberg. And the most high-profile situation where she went after Michael Bloomberg, and I'm no big fan of Michael Bloomberg, but the most high-profile situation she went after him for should have ended her campaign. On two levels. Uh, but of course, you know, the news media doesn't actually three levels, uh, but the news media doesn't uh, portray it this way. But so that's why I'm going to take a moment to do so. Here is Elizabeth Warren uh, going after Michael Bloomberg over uh, something he allegedly uh, told to a woman who was pregnant uh, who worked for him. And uh, I'll explain why there are at least three levels uh, that uh, should have ended Elizabeth Warren's campaign because of what she did here. Mr. Vice President, I was mentioned in this. No. I'd, like, I'd like to respond. No, Go ahead, a, Senator. He called me out by name a, yes. okay. and, and referred to what I talk about as a sideshow. You know, this is personal for me. When I was 21 years old, I got my first job as a special education teacher. I loved that job. And by the end of the first year, I was visibly pregnant. The principal wished me luck and gave my job to someone else. Pregnancy discrimination. You bet. 
but I was 21 years old. I didn't have a union to protect me, and I didn't have any federal law on my side. So I packed up my stuff, and I went home. At least I didn't have a boss who said to me, kill it. The way that I Mayor Bloomberg never alleged said that. have said to one of oh, his on. pregnant employees. All right. Um, I'm not sure what, what happened at the end of that clip there, but uh, she says to one of his pregnant employees. Now, there are three major problems with this, none of which the news media will point out, especially not the liberal mainstream media. The first problem is that uh, what Warren is claiming about her situation has all the indications of being a flat out lie. Uh, and, and here's how we know, because. She's told the story before, before she ran for president, way before, back in 2007. And when she told the story of leaving that job, she said absolutely nothing, implying that she was forced out of her job. Uh, she indicated that she had resigned. That's what the, uh, the, the documents at the time, back in 1971, indicated that she did. She resigned, and she herself, and when she told the story, said she didn't have the proper credentials to continue in the job. She said nothing at all. Back, this is decades after it happened, when she's first actually asked about it, because this is part of her narrative. She begins her career as a school teacher. She said nothing about the idea that somehow she had been forced out of the job uh, because she was pregnant. Now, what's interesting, if you listen to that again, and it's, I'm sure you can find it online or just re review the, the rewind the podcast, she uses very vague language, language that sounds very strong, but if you actually listen to it carefully, she gives herself just enough wiggle room so that she can get out of this if someone calls her on it. But she's banking on the idea that her media base isn't going to bank, uh, isn't going to call her on it. And from what I can tell so far, no one has called her on it. So she made a correct call that the media morons are so lazy and so afraid of attacking a woman in this kind of a situation and claiming that she's lying uh, that they won't do it. But it's a very easy lie. I mean, I, I'm pretty darn sure that the principal in 1971 is either dead or in a, in a rest home somewhere. Uh, they're not going to be able to say, wait a minute, that's not what happened. I didn't fire her uh, for, for being pregnant. So she's making this up because she wants to be a victim because that's what the American dream is in 2020, especially if you're a Democrat, to be a victim. She wants victimhood. That's part of what the whole Native American thing was. She claimed to be a Native American in her academic career because it was helpful to her and because it gave her uh, something to hang on to for victimhood. And, and so th that's the first part. The story's a lie. The second part that's a problem is here she is with zero evidence except having read about uh, a lawsuit. And, of course, inherently a lawsuit uh, needs to be taken in the context of someone searching for money from a rich guy. Uh, but she, on, based on no evidence whatsoever, she's accepting the word of this person who claimed that Bloomberg told her to kill her baby. That's number two. That, I'm sorry, that should be disqualifying for a president. You're going to make that kind of a statement, that kind of an allegation, at a public debate with no evidence. That should be disqualifying. And number three, Holy hypocrisy, Batman. This is a woman who is as pro-choice as it gets. As pro, She believes in abortion under almost any circumstance. And here she is going to ride her high horse because someone referred to aborting a baby as killing it? 
I, that, that's extraordinary. I mean, really? Come on. Really? It's just flat out ridiculous. But none of this will be brought up about Elizabeth Warren. Because as I said, the media loves Elizabeth Warren probably more than any other uh, Democratic candidate. Uh, that is her main base of support. Uh, they're a little conflicted about her taking on Michael Bloomberg because they want to make sure Bloomberg stays in the race because he's, he's paying their salaries uh, because of all the money he's spending on all of this. Uh, but, uh, but the idea that she's even going after Bloomberg doesn't make a lot of sense. Because the stronger Bernie gets, the less chance she has of winning the nomination because they're appealing to the same block of voters. Now, I realize she probably can't go after Bernie directly, and, and there is a logic maybe to if she brings uh, Bloomberg down almost as an audition for those voters who might get disillusioned with Sanders. But that is, is pretty nuanced and is unlikely, and it's not going to happen soon enough. And if anything, if she brings Bloomberg down, it's actually helping Biden become the anti-Bernie because it's obvious that Bloomberg is harming Biden uh, in many of these Super Tuesday uh, states. So to the extent that Bloomberg gets brought down, it's not going to be Warren that benefits from that. It's going to be Joe Biden, which might be the last hope there is to prevent Bernie Sanders from being the nominee. And in, uh, and in that is what I want to talk with our guest about. Uh, and let's do that now. This is an interview that we uh, did just before the the formal podcast began, which unfortunately, as I explain later, is not a full interview. It gets truncated about eighty to eighty to ninety percent through because of a technical problem. Uh, but let's listen to that now. Joining us now is David Schuster, a veteran of cable news networks, uh, several of them as an anchor and reporter over the years, a guy who. Uh, was once a combatant of mine on cable news, but we've now so somehow become the strangest of friends because of the, largely because of the Trump era. And uh, he is someone who on uh, social media has been supportive of the idea that Bernie Sanders is not to be taken lightly, uh, either in the primaries or in a potential general election against Donald Trump. And since we've become friendly, I thought this might be a very interesting conversation. We had him on the podcast once before. It was one of my favorite interviews we've ever done. So uh, welcome back to the program, David Schuster. Oh, John, it is great to be with you, and I am very excited to talk you off the ledge about Bernie Sanders. So let's do it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, to, to be clear, I am not as convinced as most sure. of my fellow conservatives are and uh, Michael Bloomberg is, for instance, uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders is a for sure loser against Donald Trump. We'll get into that. But before we do, I, I want to take this kind of in an order. So let's talk about the, the nominating process and the Democratic primaries. Uh, where are you on how sure is it that Bernie Sanders will be the Democratic presidential nominee? Oh, I think I'm ready to say it's a guarantee. I mean, and, and this gets back to some of the math that you have identified in some of your own columns. You look back to Trump. And in a crowded field in 2016, when he's getting 25, 30, 35 percent of the vote, he's still racking up delegates because the rest of the field is splitting what remains. And Bernie Sanders is benefiting from that. Now, it's a little bit different, of course, because the Democrats award by proportionality. However, even in places like California, where you are, there's a 15 percent threshold. And one of the polls that I saw had Bernie Sanders at 30, 35 percent in California, and nobody else was breaking the 15 percent threshold, which would mean he would get all of the California delegates. So at this point, look, I, I think that barring, you know, the entire rest of the Democratic field dropping out and say, you know, coalescing behind one person, maybe it's Joe Biden, maybe it's, you know, Michael Bloomberg, 
I think Bernie Sanders is on track to uh, possibly win the South Carolina primary and certainly win most of the states on Super Tuesday and have such a large margin in terms of the plurality of the delegates going into the Milwaukee convention that there's simply no way that the Democratic Party is going to be able to take the nomination away from him. All right, let me take a little bit of issue with with that scenario. First of all, I disagree with you that he will win South Carolina. I, I do think that the old guard is still going to have enough uh, pull for to, to, to drag Joe Biden over the finish line there. And if Sanders wins South Carolina, what you just said is 100 is percent true. It's over for sure. Uh, but let, let's pretend that Biden wins South Carolina for a second. Okay. And let's pretend that um, and you and you are right to point out California. I mean, it, it is amazing to me how little attention the California primary has gotten in comparison to, for instance, Iowa and New Hampshire, which have almost no meaning. Uh, if, if what you just said happens in California, it's beyond over. I don't know that that's what's going to happen because, uh, you know, it, it's more complicated than some people are making it sound with the way the delegates are allocated. But there's no question that Sanders has a chance to open up a massive delegate lead if it goes in California the way that it currently looks like it will. But even with all that said, if Biden I'm willing to say Biden wins South Carolina, and I'm willing to say Sanders racks up a huge delegate lead, whatever it is, out of California and, and the rest of Super Tuesday. It is still highly unlikely that Sanders is going to be able to get over 50 percent of the delegates. Do you, do you acknowledge that that's difficult for him to do, regardless of how well he does on Super Tuesday? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say that he may not go into the convention with uh, the the delegate math, the numbers that he needs to essentially clinch the nomination. But then what happens is the deal-making begins, right? So let's suppose that whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg, who's got some delegates that would certainly help Bernie Sanders, I can envision a scenario where Sanders says, okay, Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren, take take your pick. Which cabinet post do you want? Elizabeth Warren, do you want to be my running mate? And, as a, and that way, Elizabeth Warren goes to the convention, pledges her delegates towards Bernie Sanders as part of this unity effort that I think most Democrats will figure out is uh, going to be far more appealing to them than some sort of bloody convention where the party rips itself apart. Oh, no, I agree that that is by far the most likely scenario. And, if, and by the way, there's a lot of comparisons, and I've made them, you've made them, between Sanders in 2020 and Trump in 2016. Part of the reason why there was never any legitimate attempt to stop Trump at the convention or prior to the convention in 2016 was because the party was terrified of what would happen if they took it away from Donald Trump and his cult, which is what it was, his cult would therefore be so pissed off they would stay home and it would ensure electoral defeat in November. Bernie Sanders is in a very similar position. He has a cult. You would acknowledge that, right? He has a cult following. I mean, you're probably way more in tune with them uh, via social media than, than than I am because you're one of their heroes. But I mean, but give me give me in all seriousness, David. What would be the reaction? This is a key question in all this. What would be the reaction of the average Sanders fan if Bernie went into that convention with the most delegates and did not emerge with the nomination? What would they do? Oh, they would stay home. There was no way they would vote in the general or they would vote for right in for Bernie or somebody else. And Donald Trump would be a guaranteed victor. And I think most of the Democrats know that, that there's no way that if Bernie Sanders goes into the convention with the most delegates that he can be denied. I, I will take issue. I mean, I think the, the cult with Bernie Sanders is not so much a cult of personality, because I, I think Donald Trump had a certain charisma 
uh, that made it a, a very sort of personal, or something about his personality that people were very attached to. I'm not sure Bernie Sanders has that per se, but there is, I guess you could be fair to say, cult-like attraction to some of his policies in the Democratic Party, whether it's you know free college tuition, whether it's health care for all, whether it's taxing the rich. I mean, these ideas are the dream scenario for a lot of progressive Democrats. Bernie Sanders has tapped into that dream. I think it's, it's not just about him. I think it is about some of the issues. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I think it's fair to say that support for the, for the Sanders candidacy, regardless of where that support comes from, does have some cult-like aspect to it. Right. And that's the point. It doesn't really matter why. It's a matter of how they're going to behave. And if, you, if your goal is to beat Trump, you can't take Bernie out. And, and one of the more hilarious scenarios that the media has floated, and I think they're incredibly conflicted here because Michael Bloomberg is essentially paying their salaries almost literally because of all the advertising he's doing. I mean, can you imagine, David, uh, that uh, that Bernie gets denied at the convention and somehow Michael Bloomberg of all people is crowned? I mean, there wouldn't it wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be a civil war. I mean, it, that would be mild compared to a civil war, right? I mean, yeah, they would you know look, they would they would burn the convention down in the Milwaukee would be set aflame if that was what uh, happened. And part of it is, it's not just that Bloomberg is a billionaire, uh, and it's not just that he was, you know, a Republican for many years who supported George W. Bush over John Kerry, and it's not just because of the stop and frisk or because of support of the Iraq war. There is a sense, and I think this gets to something that you just mentioned about how the political system has been corrupted by money, and that is a key talking point, a key feeling on the left. And so the Bernie Sanders supporters believe that the network, broadcast media, which depend on all this advertising money every four years, that they are in cahoots with the idea that there's no way there should ever be any kind of campaign finance reform. I mean, the biggest lobbyist against any campaign finance reform, like what Bernie Sanders is promoting, would be the broadcast media. The National Association of Broadcasters would fight that to the death because there are dozens of stations across this country whose lifeblood depends on the huge influx of money that they get every four years during presidential campaigns and that they're getting now from Mike Bloomberg and some of the rest. So this idea that we're going to reward this corrupt political advertising system, give Michael Bloomberg the nomination, and not even attempt to fix that, and oh, by the way, we're going to try to steal this away from Bernie Sanders, people will go absolutely crazy. And I think that's a... um, Look, that's a suicide mission for the Democratic Party, and I think most Democrats know that. But perhaps there are some people who are – look, there are a lot of people who are uninformed at the mainstream media who don't understand the Bernie Sanders phenomena, who didn't understand the Donald Trump phenomena four years ago. They're repeating some of the same mistakes, and they're going to be the ones who get burned. All right. So, well, maybe literally, uh, given uh, Bernie's name. Yeah. But um, uh, but let's – so, okay, let's, let's presume for a second that no matter how it happens – uh, Bernie ends up as the Democratic nominee. You say it's darn near a lock. I, I'm not quite as sure it's a lock because I do think there are some scenarios that could stop him. But the, the, the cost of doing that for the Democratic Party, especially if Super Tuesday goes as expected, would be enormous and prohibitive. So I'm willing to say, OK, for the sake of argument, Bernie is the nominee. Now, before we get into the general one of the most uh, interesting and maybe most important elements of this whole thing is going to be who does Bernie pick as his vice presidential nominee? Because obviously he's 78 years old, just suffered a heart attack. uh, And one of the many problems I have with the idea of Sanders beating Trump is 
what is or who would be a vice presidential nominee who could possibly fit with him? I agree that Elizabeth Warren is running for that position. However, a Sanders-Warren team, which makes sense from Sanders' perspective ideologically, I'm sorry, David, that is an electoral loser right there. So, so where are you on the vice presidential nomination issue? I guess I sort of fall into the camp that the vice presidential nomination doesn't really matter. I don't think it mattered for the most part in most of our general <laughs> elections. Uh, I think it was nice that uh, George H.W. Bush uh, picked up Dan uh, picked up Dan Quayle in, in '88. Uh, Dan Quayle wasn't the strongest candidate. I think well, you know, we had our disagreements over Sarah Taylor. <laughs> I think in the I think in the end it really didn't hurt John McCain as much as John McCain's battle against Barack Obama. So. Look, yeah, sure. You could you could imagine Bernie Sanders thinking, all right, maybe I need to pick off a Midwestern state. Let's you know, let's go with a progressive like you know Senator Tammy Baldwin, or maybe there's you know if it's not Elizabeth, maybe there's you know Senator uh, Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who's perhaps one of the most beloved progressives in the progressive movement. She's a surrogate for Sanders. She's the one who always warms up the crowd before he speaks. I could see those kinds of uh, picks perhaps electrifying progressives, although the rest of the media would say, well, wait a second, who are these people? And it doesn't really make much sense in terms of electoral math. But I think I do circle around to the idea that Bernie Sanders is going to win or lose this election on Bernie Sanders. It's going to have nothing to do with who his vice presidential nominee is or is not. I understand where you're coming from, uh, because no one ever says I I voted— or didn't vote for this person because of their vice presidential pick. That's not something that they say, but it creates an impression. It's a, they, it is a team. And uh, to me, I, let, let's take this out of the theoretical into the practical. Let's pretend that it is Sanders-Warren, which mm-hmm. you know, is, is certainly logical and possible uh, based upon, you know, it's, it's, you agree that Warren's running for his VP right now, right? I mean, you agree. Oh, with- yeah. And I would say I would say that, in fact, Warren has probably put the, the dust up that they had, you know, two months behind them where they had the he said, she said over the discussion right. about whether a woman could be president. I mean, she has done so well for the Sanders camp in terms of eviscerating right. Mike Bloomberg at the right. last two debates that I think the Sanders people see Elizabeth Warren as great. Let's stick her on Mike, on Mike okay. Pence and let that go. OK, so let's pretend for a second that it's Sanders and Warren. Um, to me, you are, if not just because of ideological concerns, because they're both very far left, there's no question about that. And I believe outside of the, the mainstream of the, the median American voter, especially the median American voter in the, in the key states that will determine this election. But you've got a geographic issue of Massachusetts and Vermont that uh, how in the world do you sell that to Arizona? How do you sell that to North Carolina? How do you sell that even in Florida, where Bernie's got other issues because of what he said about the Castro and, and Cuba? I mean, to, those are those are three key states that were won by Trump. The Democrats had been salivating over potentially flipping. I don't see any chance in the world that that happens under those circumstances. How am I wrong there? Well, look, I think you trade Arizona for Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, and I think the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren theme of, hey, the system is rigged. It's rigged against workers. It's rigged against industry. It's rigged for corporations. It's rigged for the wealthy. It's rigged against the citizens of you know, Flint because of the environment. You go on and on and on, and then you say, oh, by the way, if you want to talk about the socialism stuff, well, what about the you know corporate 
giveaways, like General Motors, for example. They got $600 million in government contracts from the Trump administration. They also got another six, I'm sorry, $600 million in um, benefits from the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts. And what did they do? They gave their CEO a $22 million salary last year, and they shut down five factories and laid off 14,000 people. If the Sanders-Warren campaign can say, look, this isn't about geography, this isn't about traditional socialism as people know it, it's about should the government be looking for and taking care of the wealthy alone, or should the government also be there to help take care of the working class? That's the pivot they have to make, but I think it's also a pivot that will be successful for them in the Midwest. Okay, so but what you just said there is really important. You have, because you're a smart, logical person, you've acknowledged that uh, that such a ticket would essentially give away, barring catastrophe, you know, the coronavirus uh, causing hundreds of thousands of deaths in this country, in which case all bets are off. Um, but, you know, so unless there's a black swan event, you're you are seeding Arizona, North Carolina and Florida. Now that, well, now, now that hold on, David. Now, that's that's incredibly important because now you have no margin for error. You must win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania with zero, literally zero margin for error. You must run the table on those three states. Now, that is theoretically possible if everything goes your way. That is theoretical. But, but, but uh, right now, and Sanders is lying about this, uh, the, the average of polls shows him already losing Wisconsin to Donald Trump. Uh, it's a little bit more murky in Pennsylvania and Michigan, uh, but I would suggest to you, David, that and I'm, uh, as you know, I think you know, I'm a, a native of Pennsylvania. I've I know the state exceedingly well. Uh, socialism might play in some areas of Pennsylvania, but you know what? It's not going to play. Uh, eliminating fracking is not going to work <laughs> in, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, going uh, against guns as much as now Bernie Sanders has to go against guns because of last night is not going to work in Pennsylvania. So, so you're going to really put all of this on running because you must win Pennsylvania and you must win Wisconsin. You're going to put all of this on a socialist who's against fossil fuels, uh, as is his running mate, and who's against uh, all sorts of guns and in favor of huge gun control. How is that going to work, David? Well, I can understand why you would think that if I felt that Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida were all off the table. I think Arizona would likely be off the table because it's a much older population. It's not as industry-based. It's more sort of uh, you know, a huge retirement community, and I don't think that's going to work for Bernie Sanders. But I do think that a state like North Carolina, which has lost literally hundreds of thousands of textile jobs and has seen its manufacturing base diminish, its service industry is where the jobs are coming, and also Florida, I think that, again, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren message actually resonates. So I don't take those two whoa, 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 hold on a second. Hold on a second. You, you really believe that Florida, especially with the cat, you don't think the Castro thing kills Bernie Sanders in Florida? No, no. I think it's better that Bernie Sanders uh, made that whopper of a mistake now than, say, in October. Oh, but I think David. by the fall, most people, most people forget. David. And also, I think, there's a, I think there's a generational divide between the older Floridians who, yeah, this is an unforgivable sin for Bernie Sanders to point out anything positive about the Castro regime. I do think, though, the next generation, the younger generation of Cuban Americans are not as doctrinaire of Castro as a lot of us seem to remember. Wow. See, I mean, so what is your explanation then for why it is that so many elected Democratic, Democratic liberal officials are openly saying 
that, uh, for instance, that Florida is now essentially off the table if Sanders wins. People from Florida, uh, elected officials, are saying that. And why is it that nobody, nobody who is an elected Democratic official in Washington is rushing to the front runner who has all this momentum? Why is that not happening, David, if, if he really is somebody who can defeat Donald Trump? Well, I, again, take issue with the premise of the question, right? Uh, there are several members of the U.S. Senate, Chris Murphy, some others, who have said that they don't see a problem with Bernie Sanders being at the top of the ticket, that they think— But they haven't endorsed him. I mean, well, they haven't endorsed Look, I mean, the, the, look at the endorsements. I mean, you've got James Clyburn, who's about to endorse Joe Biden in South Carolina. Is that a smart move? Well, they go, they go way back. I don't, I don't think the endorsements matter much but, either. And the fact of the matter is it's a, it's a badge of honor. It's a feather in the cap of Bernie Sanders every time an establishment— politician endorses one of his rivals. So I don't think the, the endorsements matter to him. In fact, I think they would probably hurt no, him. No, no, I, hold on a second. I'm not suggesting that endorsements matter as far as impacting votes. I'm suggesting that elected officials have a clue about what it takes to get elected. And, and elected officials gravitate towards a winner. And there has never, uh, there has never been in the modern history of primaries, which is the, the history of my life, basically, at 52 years old, there's never been somebody who essentially won the first four contests and has had no, no elected officials rush to his side to endorse him because they, they think he's going to be the nominee and they want to get on board. They want to uh, get on the bandwagon. So, so I get your point. So look, I, I think this gets back to something we've talked about before. I do think that most of the media and most of the elected officials in Washington are totally, totally out of touch with where most of the electorate is now in 2020, just like they were with Trump in 2016. That's the first point. The second point is, as long as Bernie Sanders' numbers on a national average against Donald Trump continue to be that he is a Democrat who fares best against Donald Trump, eventually, once the nomination is settled, I think some of these Democrats will come around not because they want to, but because they have to. And the reason they don't want to is because just like Donald Trump four years ago, who said, you know what, I'm going to drain the swamp, although you could argue whether he's really done that or whether he's made the swamp worse, and I would argue he's made the swamp worse, Bernie Sanders is going to not only drain the swamp, he's going to dry it clean. He's going to vacuum it. He's going to he's going to knock out the institutions that so many in the mainstream media and establishment Democrats have been relying on. The gravy train, if Bernie Sanders is elected, will come to an end. I mean, the lobbyists are going to go crazy okay. who represent the pharmaceutical industries, the fossil right. fuel industries, who line the pockets of Democrats as much as they line the pockets of Republicans. Okay, now you just said something about the poll numbers, and I and I wrote a, a pretty uh, high-profile column about this where I believe that the poll numbers of the head-to-head matchups against Trump are incredibly deceiving, especially when it comes to Bernie Sanders, because I do not believe, now this is going to sound contradictory, but if you stay with me, I think it makes sense. I do not believe that the majority of the American people know that Bernie Sanders calls himself a Democratic Socialist and is technically not a member of the Democratic Party. Even though that that is getting more attention now, there are millions and millions of swing voters in this country who don't have a clue. They don't pay attention. And and once they learn that Bernie Sanders is not even a member of the Democratic Party and calls himself a socialist, those numbers are going to go down, David. 
Now, now, how much yeah. I don't, how much I don't know, because I actually happen to think that the, the socialism word isn't as quite as toxic as it used to be, especially in some areas of the country. And so, I'm a pessimist as a capitalist uh, in that realm. But so, so, so I'm not, I'm not as a hundred percent convinced that it is totally deadly. But it's gonna be a few points, and he's only beating Trump by four and a half points nationwide. Which, by the way, in the electoral college era of where you know Trump can what we saw in 2016 where he can win while losing the popular vote four or five points is almost meaningless and that's before the the entire public knows he's not a democrat and that he calls himself a socialist so those numbers well, are gonna shrink david i love this because here's john where i get to talk you off a ledge even though you're not as close to the ledge as some others are and here's the premise of all this I think that if you ask most Americans, even most educated Americans, people who are going to vote, what is a socialist, you're going to get all kinds of different answers. The opportunity that Bernie Sanders has is to say, look, socialism as a label is not as, and, and however you want to define it, is not going to be the issue that determines this campaign. The issue that's going to determine this campaign is, do you want your taxpayer dollars to go to the wealthy? to the richest 1% of the corporations, or do you want your taxpayer dollars to go towards education, towards health care, towards helping people who have been disadvantaged so that we can level the playing field? If that's how it's explained, and again, it's like the same argument that I've made to my Democratic friends. It is a huge mistake to describe Donald Trump as a fascist, to suggest that he's a tyrannical leader who only cares about authoritarianism, because those are labels that I think diminishes the significance historically of fascism and authoritarianism, but it also doesn't get you the vote against Donald Trump because it is just a label. So I think it's just as big a mistake for Republicans to try to label Bernie Sanders a socialist as it is for Democrats to label Donald Trump but, a fascist. But all Sanders calls himself a, a socialist, David. It's that's the. Do you it's think the people know what socialism means. Do you think most uh, Americans actually uh, know what socialism they, is? I think they have a clue uh, uh, that, about what socialism is. Obviously, there are different definitions. But but David, I, I guess the bigger picture here is, and I I do believe that the fact that he identifies himself that way is huge. I mean, because Republicans have been trying to paint every Democratic candidate. I mean, Obama was uh, painted as a socialist. Remember the whole Joe, Joe the Plumber thing? That was all about. As a socialist, right, no right. Who it is, right? But 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 he calls himself a socialist, and he's not technically a member of the Democratic Party. I think that that puts it in a different level. Plus, his proposals are clearly socialist. But here's the bigger issue, David: if your goal is to defeat Donald Trump and to prevent him from getting a second term, which I think most rational people should be uh, terrified of uh, on, on multiple levels. Why in the world would you turn an election that's a referendum on whether or not he deserves a second four years into a referendum on whether or not we want to become a socialist country? Why would you want to do that? Well, first of all, you're right that referendums uh, are usually on the incumbent in office. So this is, starts as an election about do people like or dislike Donald Trump? And I would argue that despite the economy doing okay, I still think there's a sizable, and based on Donald Trump's numbers, he's underwater in his favorability. So Donald Trump, therefore, by necessity, of course, has to make this a referendum on his challenger, much in the way that Barack Obama did when he ran for re-election. He made it a referendum on Mitt Romney and dirtied him up so badly that Obama won. But here's the difference, though. Right now, 
Bernie Sanders is talking about issues that are electrifying to a lot of Democrats. And secondly, he's the most likable candidate, according to the polls. There's a USA Today Ipsos poll that came out just a couple weeks ago in which you uh, believe that Bernie Sanders has the empathy and the likability. And Bernie Sanders was beating Trump by 20 points. He was beating the rest of the Democratic field by 12 to 15. As you know, Elections are not just about labels. They're not just about issues. I would argue that elections are mostly about you look at the guy or the person or the woman who's running, and you have a gut feeling. Do you like them or do you not like them? Do you think that they've got empathy for you? Do they not have empathy for you? Right now, Bernie Sanders is off the charts in terms of people liking him. And that's with all of these labels that are being thrown at him by Republicans and by establishment Democrats. So unless somehow Donald Trump can say, look, it's not just that he's a socialist, but that he's got, you know, he's the devil incarnate and he's got, a, you know, he's got horns coming out of his head or whatever sort of imagery you want to create. Unless Donald Trump can suddenly make Bernie Sanders incredibly dislikable, the idea that you can turn this and make it a referendum about Bernie Sanders and have that be a successful strategy for Donald Trump, I think, is wrong. Well, look, I realize that I am not representative of a, a significant chunk of voters uh, and, and for many reasons. But I got to tell you, David, uh, and you know how much I loathe Donald Trump and how much I fear a, a second Trump term for this country. I, if it, I can't speak right now because there's not enough information. I don't know who the VP nominee is, and there's a lot of things that could happen between now and November. But I can easily foresee a scenario. If it is seriously head-to-head, Trump versus Bernie, I won't vote for either, but I'm rooting for Donald Trump. And, I, and, and that it sickens me, and, uh, and it shocks me that, there, that we've gotten to this point where I can even consider that. But uh, the best analogy I've come up with so far is it's, it's as if Trump is the commissioner of the National Football League, and he's the worst commissioner we could possibly ever imagine. And you would love for him to be taken out of the job. But the person who wants the job and is being considered as his replacement wants to change the sport to soccer. I'm sorry. I'm I can't deal. I can't do that. I can't do that. I'll keep I'll keep the horrendous commissioner as long as the sport still stays stays as football. And so well, if, John, wouldn't, wouldn't it still stay the same support? I mean, but that assumes, of course, that the other owners and whatnot don't have a say in the other teams. I mean, under this scenario, let's, let's just let's, let's just take your scenario a step further. Right. It's Donald Trump and against, you know, Bernie Sanders, and you can't stomach the idea of what Bernie Sanders might do to government or do to society or do in terms of government-run programs. But there is this thing called, you know, the Congress and the courts, and don't you think that Bernie Sanders, for all of his ambitions, Medicare for all, or the $15 minimum wage, or taxing the wealthy, or, or taxes on Wall Street transactions, he's going to have to get 60 votes in the U.S. Senate. So David. wouldn't it be a great scenario, let me finish, wouldn't it be a great scenario if you, John Ziegler, were able to you know, have Bernie Sanders be the president of the United States, Donald Trump is gone. That satisfies your, your first top of the checklist. And then you get to fight Bernie Sanders in the same way you've been able to fight Democrats in the past. He has to cobble together support for his programs in the Congress, and you and everybody else is free to put pressure on your lawmakers to deny that to him and to make him a one-term president or to stop his legislation dead in its cracks. Wouldn't you rather have that opportunity <laughs> than have to worry about what Donald Trump is going to do over another well, four years? Well, well, if I was a grifter, uh, like most conservative <laughs> commentators are, uh, I, I might uh, welcome that opportunity. Uh, but I actually care about the country far more than I do about whatever I have left in my career. 
Uh, but you make a you make a compelling argument, except your argument seems to have forgotten the last three years. And, and in the last three years, the presidency has fundamentally changed, David, because Donald Trump, ironically enough, has turned it into a monarchy. Uh, he can he can uh, do the presidency via executive order. Uh, there is no congressional oversight. Uh, and to me, uh, you know, the filibuster is almost dead as it is in the Senate. With Bernie, but, 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 but you're, you're absolutely right. But Bernie Sanders, though, still supports the filibuster at the latest debate. Uh, okay. he, still supports, he still supports a limited presidency, not doing things necessarily yeah. to executive order, traditional legislation. I mean, Bernie Sanders is not somebody who wants a monarchy. How do we, how do we know that? How do we, how do we know that? I mean, I, that's nice. I hope you're right about that. I, I just don't trust that. and Because I guess part of my problem with Bernie, and this is probably our biggest disconnect, I don't like Bernie as a person. I, I think he is very similar to Donald Trump personality-wise. I think he is angry. I think the, that, that no one has paid attention to him for the first 50 years of his career. And now all of a sudden he's hot and cool. And uh, and I think he's a big a bit of a megalomaniac. I, I, I You know what? The moment that, that really turned me off forever on him was when this, uh, this, this revelation came out that he kept quiet for a month uh, that he had been informed by our intelligence agencies that Russia is helping his campaign and he holds this press conference, fiery press conference, trust me, you know, Putin's not going to do this if I'm president. And then as he's walking away, I don't know if you saw this, he gets asked about the timing of the revelation and he gave a 100% Trump answer, essentially uh, putting forward a conspiracy theory that the Washington Post uh, was doing this to bring him down uh, and that they're not his friends. Now, I'm sorry, that's Trump-like, David. Well, in that instance, it, it may be. But the fact of the matter is that he was given that briefing was a classified briefing, so he wasn't allowed to talk about no, it. No, he was and allowed to talk about it. He just, I mean, look. look if, if, you don't, if you don't like Bernie Sanders on a personal level, or you think that he's some sort of megalomaniac or some sort of guy who only cares about power, then look, that, that's, that's a decision you got to make. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case that most Democrats, Americans would see. And I think if you look at his career for the last 40 or 50 years, I mean, Bernie Sanders has a very pragmatic streak, right? I mean, he wanted all sorts of changes in the Veterans Administration. He didn't get everything he wanted, but he crafted a bipartisan bill, which formed the basis for the veterans reform that Donald Trump has taken credit for. Bernie Sanders has always operated within regular order in the U.S. Senate. He's always followed the rules in terms of the institutions for the House and the Senate, and he has stated repeatedly he does not want to be a dictatorial authoritarian president. He wants the presidency to go back to the role that it had pre-Trump. And if he wins some that way, if he's able to get 60 votes, then maybe, maybe we have Medicare for all or maybe we have taxes on the rich. If he doesn't get 60 votes, Bernie Sanders is not going to burn right. down the institutions of Washington the way Donald Trump is. Well, I hope you're right. And let me just say, and the reason why I'm not as convinced as other conservatives are that this is a a 100 percent loser proposition against Trump is, first of all, Trump has huge negatives. You know, about 51, 52 percent of the country wanted him removed from office. Uh, which is why I, I don't think that you should have a, a controversial fringe candidate because you want to make this a referendum on Trump. But if you go with Sanders, that's not what it's going to be. But the part that I think conservatives are missing, and I, I'm pretty confident you're going to agree with me on this, is that in a weird way, and part of why this is not a predictable election, is that Trump and Sanders share some of the same base. 
Yeah. And, and I think it's possible, possible that in some of these key states that some of these Trump people could bleed over to, to Bernie because Bernie's promising them more. T- talk about that. I, well, look, and I think that is that is one of the keys in all of this that you've just identified, and I'm glad you brought it up, because it's almost like Bernie Sanders is the flip side of the same coin, right? There are a number of people out there who do not believe anymore that our institutions are working, whether it's government institutions, media institutions, business institutions. They want somebody who's going to go in and destroy those institutions, to tear them apart, to tear apart the establishment. When Bernie Sanders gets out there and says, the game is rigged, it's the same type of phrase that Donald Trump was saying to great effect, the populist message in 2016, that got him all of these working-class, blue-collar Democrats in the Midwest. Bernie Sanders is speaking to them again and yet again. These are workers who are terrified by the changes that are happening to them economically because of the transformation of our society through technology, something Andrew Yang was talking about. 50% of all jobs are going to disappear in the next 20 years. We don't have names for the new jobs that are coming. People are freaked out over this, and they see a government that is not doing anything to help them. And along comes Bernie Sanders and says, you know what? I'm going to make sure that we look out for you, the workers, as these changes are taking place and make sure that you are not getting ripped off and that we're not using our government to only benefit the wealthy 1%. And it resonates with those people who hate the Democrats, they hate the Republican Party, they hate the establishment, they hate the institutions, and they look at Bernie Sanders and say, okay, he wants to tear apart Washington just as much as Trump, but oh, by the way, maybe it's not such a bad idea for my Medicare, uh, for Medicare to cover me and my family as opposed to my insurance continuing to go up and me having all these problems with health insurance. Now, at that point in the interview, unfortunately, something happened from a technical perspective that we are mystified by, and we were no longer able to make contact over the phone with David Schuster. We tried for an extended period of time, but we're not able to figure this out, uh, which was exceedingly frustrating because, as you just heard, the interview was very, very interesting, and there were several other topics that I wanted to get into. You cannot be serious! Uh, But that's sometimes the way the world works. If the interview was able to be continued, I would have said to David, okay, but let's talk about the flip side of this. Yeah, there's a scenario where maybe Sanders is able to thread the needle and somehow defeat Trump by winning Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania by the skin of his teeth. Of course, under that scenario, Trump would probably contest the election. He may not even accept the outcome because, in my view, you need to blow Trump out uh, because there's nobody within his White House, within his political party, within his state-run media, within his attorney general's office, maybe even within the judiciary that is going to say, uh, Mr. President, you lost and you need to leave. And that is a very, very dangerous scenario, one which I don't see, even under the best of circumstances, a Sanders candidacy avoiding. And then there's the flip side. What if Sanders isn't able to make inroads with the Trump base? What if the socialism word really still is toxic? And now you have the potential for a Trump blowout. And that would be maybe the worst scenario of all. Correct. Because then you have a wannabe king with a second term with no accountability post-impeachment 
with an electoral landslide, maybe an increase in his representation in both the Senate and the House, almost certainly under that scenario. And now you have uh, a juggernaut uh, that cannot be stopped because there is no way to keep him accountable in a second term, not even the midterm elections, which he won't give a damn about. Uh, And so that's the other side of this coin, the other side of this uh, double-edged sword, where if you go with Bernie Sanders, you're creating a scenario that would be horrendous uh, for the a couple different scenarios that would be horrendous for the country. Sanders barely wins and Trump contests it and refuses to accept the the outcome, which his party would back him completely because they'd be terrified of a Sanders presidency, as well as the potential of a total blowout on behalf of Trump. And now you got a monarch. Now you got a king with no way to stop him for four years. And then the other thing I would have said is uh, maybe the difference between Bernie and, and Trump is Bernie, even though he's 78, could still serve eight years. Trump theoretically can only serve another four years. That's maybe the tiebreaker, if you will, when it comes to which would be the worst possible scenario or the least bad uh, scenario between the two of them. Another topic that I really wanted to get in with David into, da- into with David is the coronavirus. And I'm really conflicted about the coronavirus. Uh, it is clearly a major problem. It is clearly an issue that uh, could be catastrophic, not just uh, here, but around the world. It already is causing havoc uh, around the world. Uh, and so I, in no way, shape, or form, uh, am diminishing the coronavirus. I actually believe uh, that because of Trump's statements over the last couple of days where he has dismissed the coronavirus, said that it's under control. Uh, he even urged people to buy stocks during the sell-off, which, which is extraordinary. What an extraordinary repudiation of Donald Trump's word and his credibility that he goes out and says, go buy stocks and the coronavirus is, is not a big deal. We've got this thing under control. And he has Larry Kudlow uh, go out there and say the same thing. And the stock market dropped another 800 or 900 points after he did that. And these are people who have made a lot of money from Donald Trump. So, I mean, and no other president ever would have said, go buy stocks. Uh, and if they did, the stock market would have gone way up. But Trump has no credibility. None. And that's maybe the most uh, scary part of this at this stage. I mean, he's holding a press conference later today after we do this podcast where you have no idea what he says, if it has any credibility, because he's a pathological liar. And you also don't even know whether or not he's getting the correct information because he has made it very, very clear he doesn't like bad news. Correct. And therefore... Maybe he's basing his opinions that it's under control under a council that is not accurate because no one wants to be the person to tell him we're screwed here, especially in the middle of an election year, because this clearly is the type of black swan event that could change everything and make it almost impossible for him to get reelected. If the worst case scenario were to occur, he would be in deep trouble. I really do believe this is the kind of thing that would erode even at some of his base because it's something that would impact people's lives directly, even if they didn't get the coronavirus. I mean, if we're in the quarantine situations or something 
really dramatic like that happened. And because he has been so outspoken and saying it's under control and it's not that big of a deal and once uh, the, the weather heats up, it'll be gone. If that turns out not to be true, and I have no idea, I have no idea whether that will be true or not. None. Zero. But my concern is I don't think Trump does either. That's the problem. And I don't have any faith that he's telling the truth. I don't have any faith that he's taking good counsel. I'm not, I don't have any faith that he's even believing whatever counsel he, he uh, is getting on this because he creates his own realities and the people around him allow that to happen. But I do believe that because he's been so out there and so doubling and tripling down on this being under control, if it turns out that that's not the case, then I think almost anybody, including Bernie Sanders, could beat Donald Trump. But there's a flip side to this, and this is this is this is where the the uh, old time anti media conservative in me uh, still exists and still comes out. There's a part of me that does think that there's a scenario here, and I really would have liked to have asked David about this because he's been a, a charter member of the liberal media for a long time. I, I do think that there's a part of this story where you're going to potentially get potentially get the, the el- major elements of the media invested in how devastating the coronavirus really is and that this becomes uh, greatly exaggerated depending on what the fact pattern is because they know this could finally be Trump's kryptonite. Uh, you know, I, I think this is what essentially happened with Hurricane Katrina back in 2006. It was terrible. It was horrible. It was devastating. But uh, as it turned out, it wasn't nearly as bad as it was being portrayed. And it was being used clearly as a political weapon in a midterm election year. There have been other situations that are similar. People don't seem to understand. We have thousands and thousands of people who die in this country every year because of the flu. Right. But that's just the way we look at life. We just accept that. That's the reality. Now, most of those people are older, but not all of them. But there are flu viruses in this country every year that kill thousands of people. That doesn't seem to move the needle for some reason. But this is new. This is uh, something we don't have a vaccine for. This has got a scary name. It's coming from China. So therefore, it's got a little bit more mystery uh, around it, partially because we don't trust the Chinese to tell us the truth about this. And so there's a lot of elements that make for the potential, underline the potential of this being greatly exaggerated for political purposes. That doesn't mean it's not real. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I do think that there's a sliver, a sliver of truth in what Trump is already uh, saying is potentially going to happen. And people like Rush Limbaugh, who I no longer have any respect for, I don't go nearly as far as Limbaugh has on this coronavirus thing, that it's some sort of uh, hoax and out, out to get, uh, created to, to, for, by people out to get Trump. That's crazy. Uh, that, you know, that's just totally absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. But I do think there's a scenario where this thing ends up getting used as a political weapon where it is exaggerated beyond what it actually is. We don't know enough information yet, but it is starting to have a real impact, clearly on the stock market going down 2,000 points in two days, which is very concerning to Trump because that's a huge part of his whole argument that uh, the economy has been great under Donald Trump. Uh, Now, statistically, as of today, uh, his stock market statistics are way below, depending on how you grade it, but uh, by most measures, way below that of Barack Obama. 
Now, that could change between now and November, depending on what happens with the coronavirus. But that's part of what has Trump so incredibly agitated. I know that in my own home, where I use my wife as a one-person focus group, my wife is extremely agitated about the coronavirus. She went out yesterday and and bought about $150 worth of food supplies in case we get uh, quarantined somehow. Uh, I thought that was a bit extreme, but if it was going to help her sleep better, I'm like, okay, fine, go ahead and do whatever you need to do. Uh, so people are, are are very prone to panicking in these kind of situations, and uh, and that would not be uh, good for Trump, and it would be good for the media. So I do think that's a potential, underlying potential, emerging uh, narrative. Now, when we come back, I'll have uh, some thoughts about uh, what's going to happen in South Carolina and where the Democratic uh, nominating process is heading. But first, here's an interview I did with Tom Bauer, the sponsor, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade, full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity, but for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. You know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at MU Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian, 
you know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Yeah, obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to, to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a, a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like, backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and, and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In, in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and, and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a, a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, it goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us, tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and Certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're we are a higher price product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness, and you know what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product, their patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products and, or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imbuecbd.com, imbuecbd.com. Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. This Saturday will be the South Carolina primary, and it will be a key moment in the Democratic race for the nomination to see who will go up against Donald Trump. I have been very outspoken for over a year, basically since this podcast began, that I believed that on paper Joe Biden was the best person to go up against Donald Trump. After the first couple of contests, I changed that position to 
Amy Klobuchar, but I fully realize that the only way that she could get the nomination is that if Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and probably Pete Buttigieg all got out of the race immediately, I knew that wasn't going to happen, and it did not happen for various reasons, including uh, ego and delusion. Joe Biden has been putting all of his eggs and literally all of his eggs in South Carolina. And it is my belief that he will win South Carolina. I think that he will hold enough of the black vote uh, and that I think he did well enough in last night's debate. And I think that there will be enough fear of Bernie Sanders within the South Carolina Democratic electorate that the old guard, older people will stand up and say, OK, hold on. This is too soon. This is too fast. Uh, we're, we're not quite ready for Bernie yet. Let's let's press the brakes on this and let's uh, you know, we're going to take a safer vote here uh, with uh, good old Uncle Joe. And I think Joe will win South Carolina. I'm mildly surprised that his base is held together as well as it has, although Tom Steyer is causing him major problems with all the advertising. I think he's picking off uh, some of uh, Biden's black support. Uh, I think that um, Bernie Sanders is also starting to pick up uh, some of Biden's black support. But I, I don't think it's going to be enough to defeat Joe Biden. So I'm predicting that Biden will win. Sanders will come in a close second. I do not know who will be third, but it will be distant uh, behind uh, Bernie Sanders. I don't expect anybody other than Biden or Sanders to be able to claim some sort of massive surprise uh, victory. But heck, you never know. This is a strange time in which we live. But here's the thing. The, the South Carolina primary is only essentially two days ahead of Super Tuesday. Many of the Super Tuesday states, including here in California, are already voting now. So the idea, and this seems to be the entire philosophy of the Biden campaign, which appears to be like, you know, out of the 1980s, when when Joe was, what, only about 65 years old in the 80s? I don't know. But uh, but the, so maybe that's why he's, he's using 1980s strategy, that somehow a win in South Carolina on a Saturday is going to create so much momentum that all all these voters on Tuesday, two days later, are going to suddenly change their votes and go for Joe. I, I just don't buy that. I, I don't think that that's a, a reasonable, logical uh, scenario. Now, there, there will be some momentum. It'll certainly help him. But how much? I mean, a couple of points uh, in most states? I, I don't see, unless all of a sudden, unless all of a sudden after South Carolina, everybody drops out, that would have an impact. But why would you do that? Why? I mean, Amy Klobuchar is not going to get out because the Minnesota primary is on Tuesday. So, you know, if only for saving face purposes, she wants to win the primary in her home state. Same with uh, Elizabeth Warren. I'm not sure she's even going to win Massachusetts, but the Massachusetts primary is on Tuesday. Pete Buttigieg has plenty of money. Why would he get out after South Carolina, especially when when he's not expected to do well there at all? Uh, Bloomberg's got all the money in the world. So nobody's going to get out after South Carolina when Super Tuesday's only two and a half days later. It's not going to happen. So I, I don't see how a win, I mean, the win in, in South Carolina keeps Biden alive, but I, I don't know that it fundamentally changes 
what's likely to happen on Tuesday. And what's likely to happen on Tuesday is Bernie Sanders is going to rack up a huge delegate advantage, especially if he does as well here in California, as is expected. And at that point, it becomes, as David and I talked about, very, 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 very difficult to get rid of Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, a lot of people have been saying, oh, he's not the nominee yet. The analogy I use here is, yeah, they haven't had the wedding yet, but the invitations are out and uh, and we're getting close to uh, confirming the caterer. And once you've done that, it is very, very, very difficult to get out of a wedding. And if you do get out of the wedding, there's going to be hell to pay because the bride that you left at the altar is going to be pissed. And in this case, uh, pissing off Bernie Sanders and his cult is going to have a very, very large price for the Democratic Party uh, if they chose to go in a different direction against Donald Trump. So the next few days are absolutely critical to where this process is headed. If there is still a chance to stop Bernie Sanders, it has to happen in the next few days. It has to start in South Carolina, and then there has to be some sort of dramatic miracle on Super Tuesday, which I do not uh, anticipate. And now, uh, as we always do at the end of the podcast, we update the percentage chances of Donald Trump winning re-election. I'm going to reduce that number slightly, uh, if only because of the coronavirus and the ensuing stock market collapse over the last couple of days. So, but I'm still going to put that at 70 percent based largely on the idea that his opponent is essentially going to be Bernie Sanders, with, which will also probably provoke some sort of a legitimate third party run. But that's something we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a future episode of the Individual One podcast. Until next time, which will likely be Sunday, the day after the South Carolina primaries. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual number one pod. That's at individual the number one pod. And until then, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.